0: It's the Victorian Variety Show. I am afraid the last chapter was rather dull. It is always dull in books when people talk and talk and don't do anything. But I was obliged to put it in, or else you wouldn't have understood all the rest. The best part of books is when things are happening. That is the best part of real things, too. This is why I shall not tell you in this story about all the days when nothing happened. You will not catch me saying, Thus the sad days passed slowly by, or the years rolled on their weary course, or time went on, because it is silly. Of course, Of time goes on, whether you say so or not. So, I shall just tell you the nice, interesting parts. And in between, you will understand that we had our meals and got up and went to bed and dull things like that. It would be sickening to write all that down, though, of course, it happens. I said so to Albert next door's uncle, who writes books, and he said, quite right. That's what we call selection, a necessity of true art. And he is very clever indeed. So you see. I have often thought that if the people who write books for children knew a little more, it would be better. I shall not tell you anything about us except what I should like to know about if I was reading the story and you were writing it. Albert's uncle says I ought to have put this in the preface. But I never read prefaces, and it is not much good writing things just for people to skip. I wonder other authors have never thought of this. This is the Victorian Variety Show Podcast in which I take an in-depth look at aspects of life during the Victorian era that usually don't get as much attention as perhaps they should in an academic setting or in media representations of that time period. Or, every now and then, I look at a lesser-known work by a writer whose more famous works we may have studied in high school and or college, as I did in an episode on two lesser-known poems by Edgar Allan Poe last June, or at a writer whose works we may not have read in school at all, which is the case this week. My name is Marissa, and the excerpt I just read is taken from Chapter 2 of The Story of the Treasure Seekers, a novel that was originally published in 1899 by Edith Nesbitt. And I'm a bit embarrassed to admit that I never heard of Nesbitt, at least not that I could remember, until about a year and a half ago, when I heard one of her short stories read on an episode of the Morbid Curiosity podcast. It was called The Shadow, and I will leave a link in the show notes, along with all the other sources that I consulted in putting this episode together. I've been wanting to check out more of Nesbitt's work since then, and in general, I've been wanting to take another look at a writer that I didn't know anything about since I started reading The Centaur by Algernon Blackwood recently. Actually, I just finished reading that this morning. I'm a big fan of Blackwood's writing, and even though he was born during the Victorian era in 1869, I believe... Everything that I've read by him so far was published in the early 20th century, so I wouldn't call Blackwood a quote-unquote Victorian writer per se, but I highly recommend him if you're a fan of weird fiction and or folk horror. And toward the beginning of The Centaur, the main character, Terence O'Malley, recites a poem that was very familiar to me, precisely because I did an episode on its writer who did live and die during the Victorian era, last September, Ode by Arthur O'Shaughnessy, who I found fascinating because, in addition to being a poet, he was also a herpetologist who had several species of lizards named for him after his death, among other things. Since I've heard of Nesbitt before, it's not quite the same as it was with O'Shaughnessy, who I'd never heard of at all until I found out about him online and decided to do an episode on him. But I thought this would still be a good opportunity to get another taste of Nesbitt's writing and learn a bit about her rather interesting life with my listeners. Edith Nesbitt, who published many of her works as E. Nesbitt, was born in 1858 in Kennington, a district in South London. Her father, agricultural chemist John Collis Nesbitt, died before Nesbitt's fourth birthday, and her sister, Mary, suffer from ill health for much of her life, which caused the family to travel to places where sea air was more accessible and winters were milder. So, during her childhood, Nesbitt lived for periods of time in France, Germany, and Spain before moving back to England, specifically Kent, which is considered to be Nesbitt's inspiration for scenes in one of her best-known novels, The Railway Children, first published in 1905. She seems to have been a prolific writer as a young woman, publishing her first poems around the age of 20, followed by around 60, by my count, novels and story collections for both children and adults. Her biographer, Julia Briggs, cited by Wikipedia, refers to Nesbitt as, quote, the first modern writer for children. Who helped to reverse the great tradition of children's literature inaugurated by Lewis Carroll, George MacDonald, and Kenneth Graham in turning away from their secondary worlds to the tough truths to be won from encounters with things as they are, previously the province of adult novels, end quote. But many of her adult works were supernatural and horror stories. According to Eleanor Fitzsimmons, who wrote a biography of Nesbitt in 2019 called The Life and Loves of E. Nesbitt, Nesbitt visited a mummy's crypt in, and I apologize for this mispronunciation, Saint-Michel at the tender age of nine, and that early exposure to the undead also showed up in her fiction decades later. But Nesbitt was more than, quote-unquote, just a writer, although make no mistake, I do think Nesbitt's literary output was quite impressive in itself. She joined the Fabian Society, a socialist organization established in London in 1884, whose goal was to establish a socialist state in Britain through education, publishing pamphlets and periodicals, holding meetings and lectures and such, rather than through revolution. According to Britannica, they've been affiliated with the Labour Party since the early 20th century, and are still around today. On their website, which I'll include a link to in the show notes, the Fabian Society describes itself as, quote, Britain's oldest political think tank, end quote. Nesbitt jointly edited the Fabian Society's journal today with her first husband, Hubert Bland, and also gave lectures on socialism. However, even though Nesbitt went against the grain, so to speak, in a number of ways. For example, she was seven months pregnant when she married Bland, which, suffice it to say, wasn't the most socially acceptable thing for a lady to do during the Victorian era. In The British Socialist Who Rewrote the World for Children, Jessica Winter refers to Nesbitt as, quote, more of an old Victorian than she might have liked to admit, end quote with a number of views that are not considered progressive today. For example, Winter says that racist, colonialist, and anti-Semitic language and imagery can be found in a number of Nesbitt's works, and notes that Nesbitt seems to have been outspoken in her opposition to women's equality, believing that a woman's role was ultimately to be a wife and a mother. For what it's worth, Winter notes that one contemporary female writer who's made the news more for her controversial opinions than her fiction in recent years, J.K. Rowling, has reportedly said that she identifies, quote, with E. Nesbitt more than any other writer, end quote. I don't know whether Nesbitt's views earned her backlash in her day similar to the kind Rowling has received, justifiably in my opinion, for her anti-trans views. It's just a similarity that I found interesting in doing research for this episode. By the turn of the century, Nesbitt was enjoying considerable fame as a writer, and Winter tells us that in 1900, the Blands moved into a quote-unquote mansion that featured quote moats, swans, wild gardens, and a grand hall for hosting Fabian society debates and political speeches, end quote. And their affairs were more or less open houses, attended by literary luminaries like H.G. Wells, who reportedly told Nesbitt, quote, I knock my forehead on the ground at your feet in the vigor of my admiration of your easy artistry, end quote after reading nesbitt's 1904 novel the phoenix and the carpet later on winter tells us Nesbit and wells fell out over an quote-unquote alleged indiscretion between wells and nesbitt's stepdaughter but life was not all glamor and glitz for nesbitt bland apparently cheated on nesbitt throughout their marriage and Nesbit adopted two children bland had with other women in addition One of Nesbitt's biological children with Bland, their son Fabian, named after the Fabian Society, of course, died in 1900 at the age of 15 after what should have been a routine tonsil and adenoid removal. Winter notes that Fabian's death shocked Nesbitt and believes that her grief was reflected in her later works, such as her 1909 novel Harding's Luck, in which Nesbitt wrote, There are certain children born now and then, it does not often happen, but now and then it does. Children who are not bound by time as other people are, quote. Nesbitt also appears to have been a pretty heavy smoker, and Wikipedia notes that she quote-unquote probably was suffering from lung cancer when she died in 1924. Nesbitt has been honored in numerous ways since her death. According to Wikipedia, A number of locations in England are named for her, such as the Edith Nesbitt Walk and Cycle Way in Eltham, the Edith Nesbitt Gardens at Lee Green in Southeast London, and Nesbitt Road in St. Mary's Bay, as well as Grove Park's Railway Children Walk, a footpath that was used as a location in the 1970 film adaptation of that novel. Nesbitt was also portrayed by actress Judy Parfitt in an episode of the PBS series The Edwardians in the early 1970s and appeared in a character in A.S. Byatt's 2009 novel The Children's Book, which Wikipedia says was quote-unquote loosely based on Nesbitt's life. However, Nesbitt was involved in controversies regarding plagiarism both during her life and after her death. In E. Nesbitt, Rudyard Kipling and The Strand Magazine, Jacqueline Banerjee explains that Nesbitt accused Kipling of stealing her idea of time travel when the two writers were contributing serialized works to The Strand Magazine. Nesbitt's The Story of the Amulet, which was published as a children's novel in 1906, started running in serialized segments in the magazine in May 1905 about eight months before the magazine started running Kipling's work on the subject Puck of Pook's Hill. However, according to Banerjee, a number of scholars have disputed Nesbitt's claims due to the fact that both writers may have had common influences, such as Edwin Arnold, whose novels explored the past through reincarnation. Also, Kipling was apparently a slow writer, who, some believe, might have been working on his time travel novel as far back as 1904. And then, in 2011, Nesbitt herself was accused of plagiarism by Anne Hall Williams, the granddaughter of British writer Ada J. Graves. Hall Williams claimed that a pivotal scene in The Railway Children, in which three children witness a landslide on the train tracks and alert an oncoming train in the nick of time by waving red flags created from petticoats, was quote-unquote lifted from her grandmother's 1896 novel, The House by the Railway. According to Benedict Page in E. Nesbitt's classic The Railway Children, accused of plagiarism, Hall Williams has said, quote "It is quite blatant, really, the plagiarism. It is pretty obvious that Nesbit had read the earlier book. I realize that lots of authors operate in this way, but it seems a bit naughty of her. Poor Ada deserves a bit of credit End quote. However, this claim has been disputed as well. According to a bookshop owner cited in Page's article, The growth of railways across Britain starting in the 1830s made children's fiction about railways quote-unquote inevitable, and the idea of children saving the day, if you will, by taking drastic actions is a quote-unquote classic trope of children's adventure stories. That's my quick summary of Nesbitt's life. Although I was admittedly disappointed to learn about her views on women's equality and race, and I don't feel it's ever okay to excuse or dismiss such views by saying, those views were commonly held by a lot of people at the time. I do also believe that knowledge is power, and as a result, I feel that not reading writers from a hundred or more years ago whose views we disagree with ultimately does more harm than good. Also, while I try not to info-dump in my podcast episodes, the plagiarism controversies interest me not because I think we should take a side, I personally am not taking one, but because they kind of tie in with some things I've discussed in earlier episodes of this show, such as how the Victorian era was a time of great scientific and technological innovation. Many parts of the world were connected by rail travel in ways previously unimaginable throughout the mid to late 19th century, and the amount of innovation in general during this time, as well as the rate at which it was happening, led a lot of people to imagine the possibilities of things like time travel. So it definitely seems like a lot of stories and rumors were circulating about these phenomena, and as a result, the idea of quote-unquote common influences on Nesbit and her contemporaries is conceivable to me. But now, I want to give you another taste of Nesbit's writing. Everything I've read about her ghost stories intrigues me, so the excerpt I'm going to read here is a description of a church in man's size and marble, a story that is included in Nesbitt's 1893 collection, Grim Tales. The church was a large and lonely one, and we loved to go there, especially upon bright nights. The path skirted a wood, cut through it once, and ran along the crest of the hill through two meadows and round the churchyard wall, over which the old yews loomed in black masses of shadow. This path, which was partly paved, was called the beer bulk, for it had long been the way by which the corpses had been carried to burial. The churchyard was richly treed, and was shaded by great elms, which stood just outside and stretched their majestic arms in benediction over the happy dead. A large, low porch let one into the building by a Norman doorway and a heavy oak door studded with iron. Inside, the arches rose into darkness, and between them, the reticulated windows, which stood out white in the moonlight. In the chancel, the windows were of rich glass, which showed in faint light their noble coloring, and made the black oak of the choir pews hardly more solid than the shadows." But on each side of the altar lay a gray marble figure of a knight in full-plate armor, lying upon a low slab, with hands held up in everlasting prayer. And these figures, oddly enough, were always to be seen if there was any glimmer of light in the church. Their names were lost, but the peasants told of them that they had been fierce and wicked men, marauders by land and sea, who had been the scourge of their time, and had been guilty of deeds so foul that the house they had lived in, the big house, by the way, that had stood on the site of our cottage, had been stricken by lightning and the vengeance of heaven. But for all that, the gold of their heirs had bought them a place in the church. Looking at the bad, hard faces reproduced in the marble, this story was easily believed. The church looked at its best and weirdest on that night, for the shadows of the yew-trees fell through the windows upon the floor of the nave and touched the pillars with tattered shade. We sat down together without speaking and watched the solemn beauty of the old church, with some of that awe which inspired its early builders. We walked to the chancel and looked at the sleeping warriors. Then we rested some time on the stone seat in the porch, looking out over the stretch of quiet, moonlit meadows, feeling in every fiber of our being the peace of the night and of our happy love, and came away at last with a sense that even scrubbing and blackletting were but small troubles at their worst. On that note... I would love to know what you think. And if you're familiar with Nesbitt's work, or maybe if you've seen any adaptations of her works, please fill me in. I would love to hear about it. Email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Marissa hyphen D96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter, if you don't already, at twitter.com slash victorianvariety1. I have to admit, I haven't been great about posting there lately, but I'm going to work on that and try to post more regularly because I feel lame that I can't keep up with social media sometimes. <laughs> but if you'd also like to support the show financially, there are a few ways you can do that. You can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13 or, or make a donation on my Linktree page at linktree slash the Victorian Variety Show, or if you're listening on the Good Pods app. Also, if you like what you just heard and would like to hear more, click the subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. And if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast, I would greatly appreciate it, because it helps the show reach more listeners. And finally... I recently started volunteering for LibriVox, which is a group that makes audiobook versions of thousands of works in the public domain available for free on the internet. I've been interested in getting into audiobook narration for some time, and I'm really excited about working with LibriVox because I'm learning more, not only about narration, but also about recording. And because I'm a huge fan of many works and writers in the public domain, and I rely heavily on them for episodes of my show, including this one, and I'm 100% behind helping to make these works more accessible to the public. A lot of the works in LibriVox's catalogs are group projects, with different readers each taking a few chapters of a book, and the first work that I've contributed to, a collection of short pieces by Anthony Trollope called Hunting Sketches, is now available for downloading. I've contributed chapters to a few more books, and will let you know when those come out as well. But I highly recommend that you check out LibriVox. They have a huge catalog, and I'm pretty sure you'll find something there that you'll like. Thank you so much for listening to this show, and for all of the support and feedback that you give me. I am amazed by the responses that I get for each episode, and hearing you tell me what you think of the topics that I cover. I look forward to coming back in 2 weeks with a brand new topic but for now I'm going to leave you with a short work from Nesbit a poem called A Dirge which I found in Songs of Love and Empire an 1898 collection of Nesbit's poems I chose this one because in the part of the world where I am it's summer right now and it's unbearably hot so even though my favorite season is autumn rather than winter I could relate to a lot of what Nesbitt says in this poem. Let summer go to other gardens. Here we have no need of her. She smiles and beckons, but we take no heed of her, Who love not summer, but bare boughs and snow. Set the snow free to choke the insolent triumph of the year with birds that sing as though he still were here and flowers that blow as if he still could see let the rose die what ailed the rose to blow she is not dear to us nor all the summer pageant that draws near to us let it be over soon let it go by let winter come with the wild morning of the wind-tossed boughs to drown the stillness of the empty house to which no more the little feet come home